Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Before we begin today's program, I wanted to update you on the progress of the Between the Covers Patreon campaign. The good news is the program continues to grow. It's on target to surpass 15,000 monthly downloads for the first time this month. And listener support has reached a level, the second milestone out of four, where typical program costs are now covered. The fundraising goals have been modest as they've been met with the support of around 50 listeners in total. That is 50 listeners out of 15,000 monthly downloads. So even though the goals are modest, the effects of a small number of people are huge in this case. So if another 20 or 30 people who listened regularly were to pledge a dollar per episode, it would have a huge effect on the program's sustainability, whether being able to pay for web support, upgrade services, or create more content. If you're curious about the Patreon campaign, about becoming a supporter of the show, you can go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Between the Covers. You can also find other means and methods to support the program by going to davidnaman.com slash support. And you can check out the websites of all sorts of uh, creative and interesting people who have supported the show so far at davidnaman.com slash patrons. Enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is novelist, poet, and essayist Sophia Samatar. Samatar's first novel, A Stranger in Alondria, published by Small Beer Press, was the winner of the World Fantasy Award and the British Fantasy Award, as well as garner- garnering the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer and the William L. Crawford Award for Best Fantasy Debut. Samatar's short stories have been anthologized in Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy and been finalists for both The Hugo and The Nebula. Her yet-to-be-published collaboration with her brother, Del Samatar, an illustrated book of prose poems entitled Monster Portraits, was a finalist for the Calvino Prize. Samatar has a Ph.D. in African Languages and Literature from the University of Wisconsin-Madison and is on the faculty of James Madison University where her focus is on Arabic, African, and post-colonial literature, Afrofuturism, and speculative fiction. Sophia Samatar is here today on Between the Covers to talk about her latest novel entitled The Winged Histories. The New York Times calls the prose in The Winged Histories heart-stoppingly beautiful. Shelf Awareness in its star review says it is for those who take their sentences with the same slow, unfolding beauty as a cup of jasmine tea. Publishers Weekly, in its starred review, calls it pleasantly startling and unexpected, prose that is by turn sharp and sumptuous but always perfectly controlled, and NPR says The Winged Histories is circuitous and hypnotic, a book told through flashbacks, meditations, and stories within stories, one that ponders weighty questions, how words make us every bit as much as how we make them. Welcome to Between the Covers, Sophia Samatar. Thank you so much for having me. So writing The Winged Histories and A A Stranger in Alondria came out of your love for epic fantasy and also a desire to interrogate the form of epic fantasy. But 
before we go into the things that you love and then the things that you have left you dissatisfied, maybe we can just start with what is your sense of this as a form? What, what makes a book a book of epic fantasy? Um, I think of epic fantasy as sort of J.R.R. Tolkien's idea of high or heroic fantasy. Um, it um, often has to do with journeys. It often has to do with different cultures uh, brushing and clashing up against each other, um, which is also true of the epic. I mean, if you think of epic poetry, it's sort of, um, it's, it's a world-making, it's a culture-making type of poetry. And I, I actually see a tie between that and epic fantasy, which often has um, different groups that are struggling together. And it's a question of who, um, of which culture will win. And it's the story, um, it's the story of that process, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and what about it is, is something that particularly has drawn you to write in that form for two books? Um, it's my first love. Um, so I'm a huge Tolkien fan. Um, Ursula Le Guin's Earthsea books uh, were also a really important influence for me. And I think, I, I would say I sort of wrote into my love for this type of fiction um, without interrogating it. And then the the um, kind of critiques sort of grew up from the stories as I was writing them mm -hmm. because in and the what I wanted to do in the beginning was actually pretty simple. Um, I wanted to write a fantasy in which there was only my favorite stuff. So I like maps. I like different languages. Um, I like journeys, and I like reading. And all of those things are often found in epic fantasy. However, there's also usually a giant conflict. And in A Stranger in Alondria, I didn't do, I did, you know, there's a political conflict, but I didn't do war um, and I didn't do dragons. Yeah. So, <laughs> and I didn't do magic. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm just not as, I'm not as drawn to, those aren't the things that I love about the genre. Um, and then by leaving some of those things out, it was like, well, now what does this, turn into and how is this still epic fantasy and I think that I mean there have been um, readers that have sort of had problems with it or been disappointed and I think it's because it does raise some of those expectations that there will be obvious ma there's going to be some clear form of magic and you know there's religion but there there isn't really magic there are ghosts but there isn't really magic so then I was asking myself well now what is this and that sort of led me into what I did with the second book. Well, it's uh, one of the things that I, I share with you, I guess, is, uh, is something that I love about the forum is opening up the book. You see the map. You see that there's a family tree, a glossary, and that we're in a, in a world of invented peoples and invented languages. So there's, this, there's all those signifiers that are, in, that are in an epic fantasy book that I think are really um, set you in a specific uh, mindset as you approach the narrative. Yeah, absolutely. And for me, well, I had a, I mean, I, I also love the, the different languages and words and names and kind of, you know, creating a lexicon for each different language. That was another thing I really love about it. Um, and that can throw people off as well. The feeling that, especially people who aren't used to reading in this genre, they can have a feeling that just, there's just too many names and I'm not going to know, you know, which names are important. But to me, the strange names are a way of creating atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And that focus on um, sound and suggestion rather than clear sense is to me, you know, what epic fantasy shares with poetry. To continue on that line of connecting epic poetry to epic fantasy. You, you, you've talked about a book by Y. Chi Demak that describes the epic as the genre of contact, mm -hmm. um, where people are going to new regions, new towns, there's cross-cultural uh, fertilization. It's essentially a, a, a genre of cultural encounter. Mm -hmm. um, but also 
one, as you mentioned, that is one of conquest. These people aren't going to these different cultures to find friends. They're going there potentially to try to create, to take land or establish power. And, and that seems to be something that you aren't, you're consciously not doing in, in these two books. Well, I think in the first book, I was consciously not doing that. I was just not, um, just sort of leaving that in the background. Now, in the second book, it comes into the foreground, but what is not there is the sort of celebratory nature, both of the older epic poetry that is, you know, I will sing of our people, right, and how we and how we conquered and destroyed our foes. Um, and that's also shared by modern epic fantasy, if you think of, you know, Gimli and Legolas sort of counting up how many orcs each of them has killed. And it's very, you know, there's no, um, there's no concern and there's no doubt in that. And so in the second book, where I do treat war, um, it's very much from a place of interior conflict in the characters and a place of doubt and regret and grief. Well, if, if, if we do take J.R.R. Tolkien is the template mm -hmm. for what you love in the genre and, and what a lot of people love in the genre. It also it seems to me like you're interrogating some of his limitations potentially in what you're doing. And, and what I mean by that is I think of um, women in the Tolkien books are not really actors. They're more inspirations for the actors in the history. And a lot of the 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 enemies in Tolkien books are not really given a lot of reason to empathize for them. Mm -hmm. And they come from the South and the East. And if we think of these myths coming from the North and the West of Europe, essentially, um, that he's drawing upon for his story, it sort of be becomes the mythic Asia and Africa. Sure. And he even uses signifiers, like they write olifants. Mm -hmm. and, um, and it feels in, a, in, a, in one way that the winged histories... At best, these the people who populate the winged histories would be marginal people in a Tolkien world, and at worst, they would be the enemies of everything that that is good. But here they are, they are the center of the story. They're the the actors, and they're the the people moving the story forward. I think, um, you know, when uh, you say or when anyone says, you know, that women don't have strong roles to play in 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 Tolkien's work, then everybody says, but Eowyn, you know, and and she is um, in a way, uh, and actually very directly an inspiration for um, one of the main characters in the Winged Histories, who is a sword maiden, a a warrior woman. But again, I think um, what I tried to do with that was to examine it in a way that questions uh, the notion of glory and the notion of glory in war. Mm -hmm. and, and you've mentioned that these books are, are populated by people that today would be considered ethnically ambiguous. Can, mm -hmm. can you talk about that choice and also um, what effect you're trying to, to create with it? Yeah, this is... Um, well, again, this is one of the very simple things that I wanted to do when I first started sort of making up Alondria and drawing the little maps and things was just I wanted to create a, a fantasy world in which um, everybody looked like me or everybody looked like some version of what in our world is a racially mixed person. Um, I I do a lot of explaining um, about who I am. I get a lot of questions. I mean, really, definitely weekly and often several times a week from, you know, strangers or anybody about, oh, you know, where are you from? Or, you know, what's your background? And, and um, so I thought I would make a place where if I would stroll in, it would just be so obvious that I was a Laundrian that, you know, nobody would have any questions at all. One of the ways you engaged with this issue of conquest versus contact in, in, in the books um, is around the issue of language. And there's this tension between oral transmission of language and, and the written, particularly in The Stranger in Alondria. Mm -hmm. And I know you were writing that book when you were teaching English in the South Sudan and mm -hmm. were having some of your own um, concerns or misgivings about teaching English in that context um, during the country's civil war. Um, can you talk about both the uneasiness that you had as a teacher of English there um, and then how that 
was related to some of the narratives you spun out in these two books around that, that issue of language and conquest? Yeah. Um, well, I went um, to work as a high school teacher in Yambio in South Sudan, in what was then just Southern Sudan. Um, and uh, this was something that uh, I, my husband and I were invited to do. You know, people wanted us to do it. People were very interested in, in learning English, and it just all looked great. And it was great. It really was. But um, I also started to have some questions about just the immense power of the English language and uh, of this project I was involved in, you know, of bringing English and bringing literacy, which are my two favorite things. So that's really what the, the, the tension of A Stranger in a Laundria comes out of, is that I'm questioning reading and writing and their effects in a, primor a primarily oral culture. And I'm questioning, you know, this imperial language, this world language, which is my language, and I love languages, and I speak a couple of languages with varying degrees of skill, and, um, you know, I love many languages, but English is, of course, my favorite. English is my language, you know? Right. So, so it was that, that was like the sticky place and the difficult place where I was going with a stranger in Alondria was, here are, here is the violence, and here is the here are the problems of what I can't live without and what actually constitutes me as a person. Hmm. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to author Sophia Samatar about her latest book, The Winged Histories. You've also mentioned uh, in that experience before that a lot of your students' favorite book that you introduced to them was Frankenstein. And mm -hmm. I was curious if you had any theories about why that particular narrative was was a compelling one for them. Well, I definitely have a theory about why it was such a good version of Frankenstein. It was extremely abridged. It was sort of an easy reader version of Frankenstein and it was it was the story. It was all story and it was all the important parts of the story. And in a way, it was the editing job that Mary Shelley needed. I don't know <laughs> if you've read Frankenstein. Not in a long time. But it's just there's just so much that doesn't have any point. And you have to read pages and pages of it about characters who will not be important at all. And so this little version that I picked up in a, a secondhand at a bookstore in Nairobi, um, it was great. And it was a great text to read aloud. And so that's for, you know, why why that's a really good version of Frankenstein. I wish I still had it. Um, but as far as why it was so compelling to the students, I think, you know, it's it's just it's a fantastic story. And it was a story that it took us a whole semester to read. And it was a form of narrative, I think, and an experience of narrative that was quite new for my students to sit there and come in every day and listen to this text of the same story, which is basically what we did, which is, hmm. you know, we talk about vocabulary and stuff, and then we'd read this thing. And they were so into it and just, you know, at exciting parts would pound on the tables and yell to the point where yeah. the deputy headmaster came in at one point to like find out if there was a riot in my classroom or what was going on. And so it was a lesson to me in, in, in narrative and yeah. in the power of narrative. Well, back to this, this question of, of oral versus written in, in the winged histories you have, there's this, uh, movement called the cult of the stone mm -hmm. and these people, worship an engraved stone with all sorts of cryptic aphorisms um, and snippets of, of purported wisdom. And I wondered how this cult relates to that debate in your mind. Uh, I definitely wondered if it was, if there was, if it was a nod to monotheism. Mm -hmm. And when I think of like Moses coming down with the tablets or the Kaaba and Mecca that, that uh, Muslims circumambulate mm -hmm. um, on pilgrimage, is 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 there something about the cult of the stone that you are um, looking at a specific relationship to language with? Yes. Um, well, first, I want to just back up and say that your 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 reading of the stone is really great and really on point. It is definitely um, 
um, it is the coming of monotheism into this polytheistic culture of Alondria. Um, and it is related to um, conservative monotheisms, monotheisms of my experience. Um, so whether that is, then uh, the ones I'm familiar with are Islam and Christianity, and specifically within Christianity, um, Anabaptist Christianity or Mennonites, which is my mother's side of the family. Um, and this is, you know, a tradition of, it's, it's monotheistic, it's also a tradition that has to do with simplicity and plainness, and would really have a lot of problems with the cult of the um, that for which the oral tradition is most important in Alandria, which is the cult of Avale, which is sort of a a love and death and sex kind of cult. So so there is that struggle between those two sides. Um, and what it has to do with language, well again, I'm I'm kind of putting myself in this in-between uncomfortable place because Avale, the the sex love death cult is the cult of dreams and and orality and music and um, and dance and all kinds of things that I love, but it is not about writing. And then on the other side, you have this sort of devastatingly grim, conservative, have to wear black robes all the time, you can't do anything um, kind of cult. And that's the cult of, again, my favorite thing, which is writing. Yeah. And there's also this interesting thing you do with the cult of the stone. I mean, because the, the wisdom is literally fixed in stone. It's engraved. So you would think there would be little controversy except about how to interpret it. But there's this phenomenon of orphans so that mm -hmm. not everything on the stone is actually the original engravings of what of what is important. Can you talk a little bit about orphans? Yeah, yeah. So the stone is crisscrossed with writing, and to the adherents of the cult, this is um, this is a miracle. This is something that has fallen from heaven with this writing on it, and we must do what this writing says. Um, however, there are all kinds of strange things about this writing in that um, there's writing on it from many different eras um, in many different languages, and um, there's there's often, you know, some confusion, some lack of clarity on what these sentences mean. Some of them are very clearly instructions for how people should live, but others are just sort of like, you know, meet me in two weeks or, you know, they're just a strange little story about something that happened. And the priest of the stone, um, who's the father of one of the main characters in the Winged Histories, he has sort of He's decide. He's the one who is institutionalizing this new religion, and he has decided to call certain texts that are on the stone orphans, meaning that we ignore them. They don't. They're 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 apocryphal. They don't have they don't have anything really to say to us, and they're not divine. Hmm. And so this then, of course, becomes uh, you know an area of of debate and struggle within the cult of the stone. Tell us a little bit about the relationship between the two books. They're they're taking place in the same created world, mm -hmm. but the Winged History isn't Winged Histories is not a sequel. It's a what you call a companion book to it. Uh, what was it that you were alluding to at the beginning of the show that when you came to the Winged Histories you you started um, interrogating and changing potentially the trajectory of, of what you were going to write based on, on the first book. Yeah. What? So, um, I do see them. I mean, one of the reasons I, I sort of say companion rather than sequel is because sequel suggests that you have to read the first one first. And in this case, you really don't, but there are certain pleasures to be had if you do is the way I think of it. I mean, because you have a minor character and a stranger in Alondria who becomes a major character in the winged histories. Um, there's, I think there's something fun and pleasurable about seeing that. Um, but it is a very different book. Um, the biggest, I would say the biggest uh, difference, um, at least that I see right now is simply that, it, it, the Winged Histories focuses on the stories of four Alondrian women, whereas in A Stranger in Alondria, we don't, I mean, we meet an Alondrian woman who's sort of important, and like I said, she becomes very important in the Winged Histories, but it's about a 
a stranger, Jevik, who's come from a different country. He's not a Alondrian. And then he kind of has this group of Alondrian men and goes across the country in a very typical epic fantasy fashion of, you know, we've got different people with different um, kind of different, these different characters that are thrown together and have this big journey together. So the Winged Histories um, is a departure from that. And, and I think, yeah, an interrogation of that epic fantasy or almost a critique of that epic fantasy form, first of all, because of the female characters, but then also because its form is these, it's much more fragmented. It's not, you know, this one sweeping epic. It's four different stories. Yeah. Yeah. And I wondered if, if the four stories being uh, the stories of women was a corrective from uh, your experience of writing the first book. I just thought of you know, Ursula K. Le Guin started with male protagonists mm-hmm. when she started and it was just an automatic choice. And then she started questioning, well, why is this my automatic choice? And, and, and then wrote differently because of her own realization. Yeah. And she is actually a huge, um, and that story of hers is a, is a huge inspiration for what I did with the winged histories. I think it's really, it's sort of the only, it's, it's the only good answer you can give to, questions of, you know, why did you do this thing um, that maybe you shouldn't have done or you should have thought more about in your book? I think, you know, you can explain and excuse yourself and so on, but it it just doesn't, it doesn't, it's not going to carry the weight of writing another book. Right. You know? Yeah. Well, you have this great epigram at the beginning of The Winged Histories. Those on the border write no histories. Their book is memory. Uh, and that could be referring to oral cultures versus mm-hmm. written cultures. It could be referring to white stories versus the stories of people of color. Um, but it s- feels like in the winged histories, it most strongly is related to this question of gender and the anxieties that the four protagonists have that even though they're d- doing important things and are actors upon history, that maybe their stories won't be told and, and remembered. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that's... Um... It's sort of an idea that rises. It's a, it's a theme that kind of flows in and out of the of the four narratives. But this question is always arising: of what if your if your history is memory, then it doesn't outlast you. If that's all the history that you have, mm. um, and so, and these characters, I think want to be part of history. They want to be historical actors. And so um, that's the difficulty for for them. And again, this is also my, um, you know, looking at the Alondria that I created in the first book and saying, okay, now here's what I made and it's already there. And now what's the experience of women within that sort of you know, um, culture that shares a lot with uh, ancient Greece and and Mediterranean cultures and and uh, medieval Egypt. These are all sort of influences of Alondria. Um, it's all a very kind of um, patriarchal setting. So then, that was in a way the constraint of writing that second book. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to author Sophia Samatar about her latest book, The Winged Histories. Well, I had this really interesting sort of double impression of of the first uh, female protagonist, Tav, that we are introduced to. And she she bucks her family's expectations and joins the military and becomes a, a woman warrior, mm-hmm. essentially. And I was expecting her to potentially, going in just initially when she does this, I was expecting her to bring a different perspective to the military as a woman and that there would be... Um, some shakeup because of it. But in a way, my experience of reading her going into this um, experience is that she very much assumes the male relishes and or if she doesn't relish in the violence, she participates and doesn't think very deeply about it, much like her male compatriots. Yeah. And then I started to wonder, well, what is Sophia Samatar doing with this character? Um, And I wondered if if we look at like uh, fantasy and science fiction and what it's doing with women and female characters, we're definitely in a renaissance right now of, of much more uh, female protagonists, but they also seem to be taking on all of the, um, the uh, male tropes Mm -hmm. instead of really being, I, I would think of something like hunger games or something, maybe, maybe 
Um, I wondered if the book was questioning this, this issue of adopting the, the, the male tropes with a woman at its center. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Tav is my answer to the whole debate about strong female characters and that we need more strong female characters and the definition of strength that people are often working from, which is the ability to bash your enemy's head in. And it just doesn't, um, you know, to me, Tav's story in the in the military, she does relish violence. Absolutely. She's completely, you know, she becomes berserk. She becomes caught up in it. And um, this, I mean, I guess it just expresses what I believe. You know, I don't believe that there are, that, that gender characteristics are so sort of essentially tied to us that merely, you know, um, or that sex and gender are so tied together that throwing a female sexed person into a male dominated space is going to have some, it's going to be like throwing a wrench into that space. No, it's not. It's much more likely that she will, you know, um, become a part of that space and, and behave just like the men around her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, so in the, in the winged histories, we get four histories the history of the stone, the sword, of music, and of flight, and four different female protagonists. Can, can you talk a little bit about the, the structure, the, the sort of overlying structure of, of the book and how you arrived at that? Yeah, wow. Okay, so, well, I it takes me a really long time to write a book. Right now I'm averaging about nine years per book, which I would really like to change because I think that's way too long. But... Um, you know, it is what it is. So the, this book has been through so many iterations and transformations over the years that I, I, I can only say that I arrived at the structure by just doggedly trying and failing and switching it around. But what, what I eventually wound up with is uh, these four characters. Three of them are quite closely related to each other. So Tav, whom you've already mentioned, who's the woman warrior, is, I mean, I see her as sort of a central character because she's related to two of the other main characters. One of them is her socialite sister, and another one is her lover, who's a poet. And then there's Tialan, who is the scholar and who belongs to the cult of the stone, and who is also the character who's, who's coming over from a stranger in Alandria. Um, and she's kind of... Um, I love her. She's kind of the odd woman out, I guess. She's, well, she's, for one thing, she's on the other side, right? She's the, she's sort of, um, she's on the other side of this conflict. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's have our listeners hear a little bit from, from the Winged Histories. Okay. You could read a little section for us. Um, sure. I'm going to start just at the beginning. So this is book one, which is the history of the sword, where Tav is the main character. Um, and it starts with a sort of longish quotation from a book called The Sword Maiden's Codex. So I'll start with that. Chapter one, secrets. The sword maiden will discover the secrets of men. She will discover that men at war are not as men at peace. She will discover an unforeseen comradeship. Take care. This comradeship is a Dwayman shield. It does not extend all the way to the ground. The sword maiden will discover her secret forebears. Maris the Crooked fought for Keliathu in the War of the Tongues. Wounded and left with the high-piled dead, she was rescued before the pyre was lit by the man who most despised her, her second lieutenant, Farad. Farad, she said to him, what have you done? And he answered, do not thank me, general. I am like a man who has preserved his enemy's coin, and I am like a man who, having seen his enemy safely submerged among crocodiles, has drawn him out again. The sword maiden will discover that her forebears are few. There was Maris, and there was Galeron of Nain, and there was the false countess of Castenia. The sword maiden will hear rumors of others, but she will not find them. Her greatest battle will be waged against oblivion. That's from Feralanya of Bream, the sword maiden's codex. 
I became a sword maiden in the Brogyar War among the mountains. I was 15 when I went there to school, 15 and a runaway. The old coach swayed, the pink light of the lantern bounced against the mountainside, and I sat with my hands clenched in embroidered gloves. My furs were cold. I made Fulmia stop the carriage at the officer's hall so that I could give them my letter. This hall had once been a temple of Avale. Now fires burned among its smoke-stained pillars, and battered shields lay stacked up in the porch. Nirai stood in the doorway and cried in the wind, What news from the valley? Then he peered closer and started. It's all right, I said. I have a letter from the duke. Inside, they were all there, Uncle Gishas, Prince Ruaf, and others. They passed my letter around the great stone table. You've been listening to Sophia Samatar read from The Winged Histories. While you were writing The Winged Histories, you were completing your doctoral dissertation in African literature mm-hmm. on Tayeb Salih. And uh, you've said that you've that quite a bit of the research went into the world building. Um, could you tell us who Tayeb Salih is, why you wanted to write your dissertation on him, and then perhaps share some of the ways in which it was uh, an, in, an inspiration for the, the fiction that you wrote? Yes, I would love to. Um, so Tayeb Saleh is, uh, I think, one of the greatest writers who ever lived. Um, a, a Sudanese writer uh, wrote in Arabic, um, passed away in 2009, um, and his great novel, Season of Migration to the North, is the novel that I always tell people to read when people say, oh, I want to read, you know, some Arabic novel, what should I read? And I always say that one, um, and I'm supported by the Arab Academy of Damascus, who declared it the most important novel of the 20th century. So most important right. Arabic novel of the 20th century. And it is, well, it's a big influence on A Stranger in Alondria because it's sort of an education and travel novel, um, which A Stranger in Alondria is as well. Um, but when I was working on my dissertation and also working on the winged history sort of at the same time, I... There, I have a chapter on folk epics, actually on folk epics of North Africa and their relationship to Tayyip Saleh's um, last work, which is called Bandarsha, which is unfortunately out of print, the English uh, version. Um, but it it is very closely related to these kind of folk epics of, of Northern Africa. So, um, and that actually, it was working on that, that had me thinking about this notion of the epic as a, as a genre of, Mm. of contact and conquest and poetry and primarily male poetry. So that becomes a big question for the poet in the winged histories, who is a woman and, um, and an oral poet. And there's a question of, what what is women's poetry? What kind of what kind of poetry do women compose, and what kind of songs do women sing within her culture? And how could she how could she do something different? And that question arose from your dissertation, mm-hmm. f- from your engagement with Sally's work. Yeah, oh, absolutely. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. You've also have written about and teach Afrofuturism. For people who haven't heard that term, could you could you give a, a your definition of what Afrofuturism is? Yeah, um, to me, Afrofuturism is um, is a futuristic, imaginative creativity by um, people of African descent, and it is a way of imagining. Um, the cultures of Africa and the diaspora into the future. So it's kind of, a, it forms a link between past and future. So it's not just about imagining the future or black people in the future, but it's this idea of, um, of the persistence of these cultures in our imaginative, uh, in our visions of the future. And is that what you mean when you say that the word future and Afro Afrofuturism is deceptive? That it really is a lot about the past at the same time? Yeah, that's the way I see it. Mm-hmm. And when you say it's it's a genre of or a subgenre of people of African descent, is is it a 
primarily Amer uh, African-American phenomenon, or is, is there Afrofuturism in Africa as, as well? This is a, qu a question that is still very much up for debate. I can tell you where I stand on that debate. Um, I definitely have friends who um, consider it only African-American. Maybe they'll involve the Caribbean. Nobody quite knows what to do with the Caribbean in this debate, but it's, it's uh, often it's included. Um, and the people who take that position would see African science fiction as something very different. I myself, um, I see Afrofuturism as pan-African from its beginnings. Um, and so I don't, um, I don't sort of I guess, fall into that idea of, of making a big separation. But I do think that it has particular qualities. So I don't think that, you know, every science fiction story that happens to be written by a black person fits into Afrofuturism. Um, I myself, of my own work, I would say I've only written one story that I really consider an Afrofuturist story, and that's, um, it's called Request for an Extension on the Clarity, and was published in Lady Churchill's Rosebud Wristlet. It's a great magazine. Yes, but it's very hard to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it, with this reaching into the past and also going into the future, it seems like it might be a blend of fantasy and science fiction at the same time in some in some fashion as well. Yeah, it definitely you know draws on um, myth and the fantastic as well as um, the futuristic. So when I had China Mieville on the program, he talked about how he felt like. Of course, there's there would be numerous exceptions to this, but I'm curious if your your thoughts on it. He he, uh, the, his thought that fantasy um, was generally speaking more um, oriented to a conservative impulse that it comes from uh, or draws upon myths and stories from our past, and and that science fiction, as a general rule, is more progressive and in its uh, imagining of of cautionary dystopias or aspirational utopias. Does mm -hmm. that does that seem too simplistic to you? I mean, I I can see where that idea is coming from and I can see where it makes sense. I guess um to me there's, you know, there's so many different types of fantasy that I think where it seems to uh maybe a little overly reductive is to just say fantasy is is not a progressive genre. Now, honestly, I would I I would take it for for epic fantasy for my you know the genre of my novels. I would say yeah it 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 it's kind of it's pretty conservative. Um, I think there is something. In, I mean, I, I again, I think I think the epic is a concern. It's trying to conserve a culture. That's what it. That's one of its purposes, you know. Um, but then I think about fairy tales, which are wildly subversive, and would also fall into fantasy. So mm -hmm. there, I would kind of go, mm, maybe it depends what kind of fantasy you're talking about. And certainly, you could have a conservative. Uh, or retrograde impulse also around imagining the future. Certainly you could. And science fiction. And often you do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wanted to ask you, you about how, when we were talking before about how you wanted to populate this world with people who are ethnically ambiguous, perhaps out of the, the hope that you could, you know, walk around a world and not be asked these questions about your identity. Um, you, you've also written about how academics of color while underrepresented in the academy, are highly in demand for their visibility as an attempt to portray diversity. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk a little bit about um, the differences between anti-racism work in the academy and, and uh, this discussion around diversity? It was a really fascinating article that you wrote about that and imagining uh, your situation as an academic, that it, a lot of it must have come from personal experience as well. Well, yeah. Um, thank you for um, saying that. Thank you for liking the article. I am, I'm fed up, actually, with this discussion to some extent. Mm. I, and I, I think there's a great book by Sarah Ahmed called On Being Included, and it's about diversity work in higher education. And I really like to point people toward that book as a place to um, 
I mean, I think she says things a lot better than I do. And that book has been really helpful to me in understanding how diversity work, that is the diversity committees um, at universities, actually are there to not perform their work. And this is not, you know, this is not trying to, you know, talk down anybody who's been on those committees. I've been on a lot of those committees. Um, but the work is not possible often. And the work seems to be made impossible by the structure which has created the committee that is working on the work. So you get into a very bizarre um, and alienating situation where if you're doing diversity work, it's there's a need to talk about it all the time, for you to stand up all the time and talk about what you're doing because talking about it is standing in for change. Mm-hmm. And it's depressing. It's really depressing. And I don't, I don't have... Um, I mean, I think if you're, if the article you're referring to, I think it must be the skin feeling essay that was in the new inquiry. Yeah. Um, I don't, that was like my best shot. Like I gave it my best shot in that article in trying to say something real about this. Um, I thought it was great. And I hope people go to the new inquiry and read it really. If people are curious about this discussion and, and aren't quite sure or want to know more. Yeah, and aren't quite sure what exactly I just said. Because it's it's really yeah. well, it's particularly very tricky. White, yeah. Well, particularly for white people, like I have I have a feeling if if you say there's a big difference between doing work against racism and doing diversity work, that that might draw some blank stares back because right. um, it requires some some learning to understand why why that isn't the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to author Sophia Samatar about her latest book, The Winged Histories. Well, I'd like to pivot from there to your interests in hybrid texts, because it feels like you go from first-person narration to letters to third-person historical documents, and you take a very plot-centric genre, the epic, and you instead you foreground language and syntax. It feels mm-hmm. there's, you know, like if you were imagining... Virginia Woolf writing parts of of this book in terms of um, you'd be be surprised if you open this book and you expected it to be um, just plot driven mm-hmm. like the abridged mm-hmm. Frankenstein. So yeah. uh, t- tell us about your your journey into um, hybrid text and and cross genre. Yeah, well, I'm always interested. I've always been interested in what I think of as different textures within. Um, within a narrative. And I'm interested in the connection between, you know, text and texture and textile, this notion of sort of weaving different things together. And there's actually a sense in which um, it's not, again, if we go, if we go to Tolkien, I think we can see that this is, this is also um, part of what he's doing and part of what I love about his work is that, you know, that he really takes time for poetry and song and people are always stopping to sing and often they'll sing a whole story, you know? Um, and he was really interested in, in that kind of oral tradition and in his characters having that tradition. And this is something that, uh, I mean, I'd say probably my, my love um, for hybrid work comes out of that idea of inserting stories um, within stories and inserting songs and poetry into stories, which you also find in A Thousand and One Nights or The Arabian Nights, which is another really, really important um, body of work for me. Um, and then, you know, now I'm, I, well, I, I use short stories to experiment a lot. So my stories have becoming have been becoming more and more autobiographical and more and more sort of like essays. And at this point, I feel like what the, you know, my favorite genre is somewhere between fiction with a work cited page and academic essay with too much personal information. <laughs> That's great. In in the third section of the book, the history of music, mm-hmm. it's written in a in a modular form. There's a use of white space, and I was 
I was curious about it. And, you know, I was searching for why is this form different here? And I was looking at your recommended reading list on, on your personal page and seeing many names both in and outside of the science fiction fantasy genre, but notably the ones outside of it, Maggie Nelson, Claudia Rankin, Teresa Cha, Proust, um, mm-hmm. Ricky Ducournay. Um, and I couldn't help but wonder if they were somehow influencing the history of music chapter in some way in particular. Yeah, very much so. I think the um, the biggest influence on that chapter is actually, and I think it's on my recommended reading page, I hope so, is Ava by Carol Maso, um, a book that I have loved for a long, long time. And, you know, if you open that book, it it looks like my poet's pages that I sort of cribbed from that book, honestly, you know, in mm. terms of tone and the use of white space and the kind of um, disjointed um, lyrical language. And what, you know, for me, you know, that book, so Ava is this book of a woman who's dying and her whole past is going through her mind in these different pieces. And it's a mixture of her past and what's happening to her now in the hospital and people visiting her. Um, and for me, what it w- what it was in between um, or what it helped me to express was the space in between the oral and the written, because this is something that the poet who doesn't write is speaking and Tav is writing it down for her. Hmm. You wrote a piece once called The 13 Words That Made You a Writer mm-hmm. that um, really, I think, speaks to some of your love of language and syntax. Uh, I can read the 13 words if you don't know them by, by heart, but let me guess what they are. <laughs> I think, I, I think they are. There was a library and it is ashes. Let its long length assemble. That's perfect. Yeah. Can, can you talk t- about those words in, in relationship to you as a writer? Yeah. Those are from the amazing Gormenghast by Mervyn Peak, which is the second book of his Gormenghast trilogy. And uh, another uh, very important influence on the Alondria books. And what I love, I mean, these books are just, they're really like nothing else. They're so rich and they're so strange. And they, it was from Mervyn Peak that I learned that you could just not explain stuff. You can just have a fantasy world and you don't have to you don't have to say how everything about it came to be you can just have it cuz he has this weird castle out in the middle of nowhere and these people with you know their names are english but this is clearly not england and and it's just really weird and great and it's also it also really takes its time it's a very dense you know work that is not plot-driven at all. And that's the other thing that I love about it. But my favorite part, um, which that quote is from, is at the beginning of Gormenghast, where it's really it's really hybrid writing. It's like um, he introduces the second book of this trilogy by with prose poems, one for each of the important characters. And it's a way of introducing the reader to these characters. And it's just... I mean, I want it in a chapbook form so I can carry it with me always. It's just gorgeous. Hmm. And you also, Arabic was also a big influence on mm-hmm. Alondria. Can, can you speak to, to Arabic and, and your world building and your language building? Yeah. Um, well, it definitely had an effect on the language. For example, Alondrian plurals. I mean, anyone who um, knows um, or has studied Arabic will know that the plurals are pretty complicated, and there are many, many different ways to form plurals. And so Alondrian has that. Um, it has a similar uh, conjugation in terms of, you know, masculine and feminine gender, um, including for plurals. Um, but I think the biggest way or the strongest way that Arabic emerges into the Alondria books is in Jevic's experience of learning to read in the first book, A Stranger in Alondria, because there's a section where he's, it's just such a drag to learn to write another language. I mean, 
for me, it's it was just so painful, especially since I love reading, to be trying to read and the letters just aren't making sense and it's so hard. And for Jevik, he's never read anything. This is his first experience of reading. And then one day, he just, you know, it's like when someone who's teaching you to ride a bike lets go of the bike and you're not thinking about riding the bike. And so you're riding. And maybe if you remember you're on a bike, you're going to fall off. But there's this sense of, of a takeoff with reading an, another script when all of a sudden it clarifies and it's like your brain has just gone there and you're reading and you're reading and you're not, it's not painful. And, mm. and that's um, an amazing feeling that went into my book. I would imagine that same feeling happened to you around writing also. I know that one of the main reasons you took 18 years for the two books was because you were, you were figuring out how to write. You, you were figuring yeah. that out by trial and error. Mm -hmm. Um, and I imagine your next book's not going to take nine years as you fear. I don't know, David. <laughs> I'm not sure. But what I wanted to ask you around the, the, that length of time is your the length of time to me, when I read about your experience about taking that long and, and you saying that you were, you know, making mistakes and learning from them. But it also, you wrote a ton of material f of world building that doesn't, didn't end up into the book. Mm -hmm. um, sacred texts mm -hmm. for the world, origin myths, charts of deities mm -hmm. in, in Olandria. Um, so I was curious how long you spent writing these um, these texts that exist outside of this text that, in, that inform it but are not there. And then also, are we going to see your version of Tolkien's Silmarillion at some point? <laughs> Um, so, well, for the first question, I think, um, it really wasn't that long. I mean, I was writing very kind of fast and fierce. I was writing, you know, several hours every day. So I think it was about three months that I spent and there's, I don't know. I mean, there's no, there's no typed version. There's just a handwritten in tiny handwriting. That's maybe a hundred pages. So I don't know exactly how long it is. Um, but I just wrote yeah, I wrote kind of the 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 early kind of mythological history of Alondria in order to give me um, something to stand on and something for the characters to refer to. Um, and I stopped. I didn't take longer on it because of something that I really strongly believe, which is that you should not spend too much time doing research before you write. You should always start writing, and I think you should write and research at the same time. And, of course, for a fantasy writer, the research is world-building, right? World-building is what we have in place of research. Instead of looking stuff up, we're creating the stuff. Um, so I didn't want to take too long on it but, and lose the freshness of the story. You know, if you do it, I think if you do it in a way where you're trying to cover all your bases, you can be like, you know, that PhD student that never, ever will finish because they can't stop reading. And, um, and that, I think, gets you to places that are not helpful or fun. Will people ever see my Silmarillion at this point? <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, maybe when I'm dead. Um, so hopefully not for a while. Yeah, hopefully not. <laughs> well, before we end, I'm hoping you're 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 willing to talk about that your work in progress because it's very exciting. It's a departure from what you've done, mm -hmm. and a very interesting one. Thank you. Well, yes, it is a departure in that it is not. Um, it is not epic fantasy, and it is not even fantasy. It is a hybrid text that involves fiction, history, and memoir. And it's based around a historical event, which is a trek, a migration of Mennonites from southern Russia to what is now Uzbekistan in the 1880s. And can you talk a little bit about what brings you to to want to dramatize and and interiorize around this specific historical event? Yeah. So, um this book that I'm working on is um I think of it as my big identity book. Um there's a lot of stuff about identity in in the Alondria books, but it's also in a made-up world. And so this book that I'm working on now is set entirely in our world. And um, 
this moment when these um, German-speaking Mennonites go and settle in the Khanate of Kiva, uh, again, which is now in Uzbekistan, is a moment of Muslim-Mennonite interaction. And that's also my family story. My family story and my own you know, beginning is a Muslim Mennonite interaction. And that's really what got me interested in the story. And then once I was interested in it, I found out, I mean, it's just, it's really an amazing story. And one that, um, you know, I, I, I feel like I could almost endlessly turn it over and contemplate different aspects of this story and always draw out something different and interesting. So the most recent thing that I did was go to Uzbekistan, which I did in June, um, and I went on a Mennonite heritage tour where we followed in the footsteps of this group of people who were traveling, you know, across the country to eventually settle, um, and, and they remained there for about 50 years. And that was a really amazing experience, and I, and I have, you know, the, the journal of that trip will be part of this book along with many other things. And what's interesting is I'm presuming that most of your readers won't know of this history before they read your book, that this isn't a, mm -hmm. a prominent part of, of people's understanding of history. And because of that, even though this is a departure from, from fantastical fiction, it's going to seem fantastical to it a lot of people. It actually is a totally fantastical story. And I'm yeah. sure that that is part of what draws me to it is just sort of the strangeness of it, which again is also the strangeness of my family and myself. Yeah. Well, I can't wait for it. Thank you. Uh, well, it's great having you on the show. Thank you so much. So we are talking today with Sophia Samatar about her latest book from Small Beer Press, The Winged Histories. From listening to Between the Covers, I'm David Naiman, your host. <laughs> Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash between the covers, and also while you're there, check out the growing archive of bonus material available. Thanks for listening.